Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 78 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. And what an episode this is because I have some pretty significant news to share with you and a fantastic interview with two writers whose work I enjoy and admire. First of all, my news, I'm excited to announce the launch of the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook. This is a project that I've had in mind for a long time now, and with nearly 80 episodes of the podcast out there, the Creative Writers Toolbelt has become quite a store of practical advice, with plenty of examples from great literature, as well as insights from award-winning New York Times best-selling authors that I've interviewed, including Nancy Cress, Daniel Jose Nisi Shaw, Becky Chambers, Peter F. Hamilton, Alastair Reynolds, and many more besides. Now, I want to take the very best content from all of the episodes of the podcast and put it into this handbook, not only for you guys that listen but also for every other writer around the world. I've been planning and thinking about this project for months and now it's time to put it into action. I want the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook to be the very best that it can be in terms of content, design and illustration, production and editing but I can't do that without your help. If you've benefited from the Creative Writers Toolbelt, if you've heard something useful or you just wish that there were more great books in bookstores out there then I hope you'll partner with me on this project. I'm starting the project with a crowdfunding campaign through Indiegogo to raise the money I need to make this into a terrific resource. So it's gonna cost a thousand pounds to make the handbook a reality. Now about 400 pounds of that is gonna be budgeted on design, illustration and formatting. Another 400 is gonna get spent on editing to bring that aspect of the book up to a really professional standard. And the balance around 200 pounds is gonna be spent on production costs and marketing. And I'm starting the project now with the aim of getting to episode 100 around about March or April of next year, 2017, and then having the book published based on all of the content from those first 100 episodes in around about August or September of next year. And there's going to be a range of fantastic perks available for those who can support the project, from public and personal thanks for any contribution, through to signed special editions of the handbook, to a very small number of exclusive opportunities to come and be a guest on the podcast. So if you've benefited from the Creative Writers Toolbelt, or you want to be part of the project, please consider how you can help. Go to the Indiegogo website, that's indiegogo.com, I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O.com. Look up the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook. Check out the options and perks for supporting the project. Choose one that suits you and make your pledge. And then please do tell others about the project through social media and word of mouth. And please do it as soon as possible because this campaign's only going to run for a month or so. I really want this to be a fantastic resource for writers everywhere and I really hope that you can partner with me to make that a reality. And thank you so much for your support that you've given to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. And that website again is indiegogo.com, that's I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O.com. Go there, look up the Creative Writers Toolbelt handbook and thank you. And now here's the interview. This episode is a conversation with two authors who bring different but equally marvellous visions of the fantastic to us, and they are Nisi Shaw and Becky Chambers. I've interviewed them both before, and it's an absolute delight to bring them together for this conversation. So by way of introductions, Nisi Shaw is an African-American writer and journalist. She's co-author with Cynthia Ward of Writing the Other, Bridging Cultural Differences for Successful Fiction, and she's a graduate of the Clarion West Writers' Workshop, and her short stories have appeared in Asimov Science Fiction magazine, The Infinite Matrix, Strange Horizons, 
and Semiotext, and numerous other magazines and anthologies. She's been nominated for numerous awards and won the James Tiptree Jr. Award for her short fiction collection, Filter House. She's a founder of the Carl Brandon Society, whose mission is to increase racial and ethnic diversity in the production of, and audience for, speculative fiction. Nisi's new novel, Everfair, a steampunk reimagining of how things might have been in the Belgian Congo at the turn of the 20th century, is out September 6th from Tor Books. My other guest is Becky Chambers. Becky came to prominence in 2015 when Hodder and Stoughton bought her crowdfunded, self-published debut novel, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, which was nominated for the Kitsches, long-listed for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, and shortlisted for the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Becky has a background in performing arts and grew up in a family heavily involved in space science. She has been a technical writer, a bartender and a production assistant. And as well as fiction, she also writes essays and short stories. And the standalone novel sequel to The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, called A Closed and Common Orbit, will be out from Hodderscape on the 20th of October. So, welcome ladies again to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Glad to be here. So to start off with, can each of you tell us about your background and upbringing and the way in which that's informed your writing to this day? Uh, Okay. Um, I was brought up in a small Midwestern college town. Um, I lived on the north side, which was the historically black neighborhood It was also the edge of town, so I got to um, run around and pretend I was uh, chasing dragons off of cliffs and stuff like that and just be out in nature, which I think all those things have informed my work. Uh, The idea that blacks were a minority was a startling one to me because there were so many more of us around every day in, in my life, so a strong identification with my culture and community and a strong affinity for nature. Okay. Thank you. What about you, Becky? Um, Well, I grew up in a, a very spacey family. Uh, My, my dad as a recently retired aerospace engineer, my mom teaches astrobiology. Uh, My grandfather worked on the Apollo program. So for me, um, space exploration, the idea of humans in space was just a very, normal everyday sort of thing like that's what everybody's family did um so (laughs) so i i don't see it as a huge surprise that um even though i didn't go into the sciences myself that's that's where my imagination hangs out those are the those are the 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 stories i love and also the the um the real life future that i that i hope for um and that was all very much influenced by um you know just just having that as my, my my background noise as a kid I also, you know, my mom coming from a biology background uh, really instilled in me a love for nature and for animals and and for the the infinite forms in which, you know, living things manifest. Um, So, you know, I I think that shows up in my writing, um, you know, in my aliens and and the the other creatures that, you know, that you encounter throughout the galaxy. I like to spend a lot of time messing with um, biology and uh, reproduction and food and just all of all of those you know things that make us us and then from there i i kind of you know build it out and and say okay well well how do how do those physical differences how do our how do our material differences affect 
culture and um you know the way we interact with each other um because those are those are things that that interest me very much as well so that's where i'm coming from now both of you rely on a rich and vibrant cast of characters for your work can you tell us how you go about forming and developing those characters and i'm particularly interested in how you work towards the point where those characters feel real to you sure um for me characters always come first when working on a story i know some people start with plot but i i start with people having conversations with each other um that's where most of my scenes start so for me, um, a character or really a, a book isn't ready to go until the characters are, are people who can easily have a conversation in my head <laughs> as as mentally healthy as that sounds. But yeah, they, 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 you know, they need to be able to bounce off of each other. They need to, you know, just be able to interact easily. And I need to have a clear idea of, of who they are and, and where they come from and, and what they're about. Um, and from, you know, the rest of the story flows from there. Okay. What about you, Nissi? Oh, I agree that characters are where plot comes from. So that's what I start with as well. And my idea is that they are fully formed. I just need to get to know them and get get uh, them out on the page so that other people can know them. Uh, I do sometimes do interviews with my characters or have them interview each other so that you can find out more about them that way. And yeah, I, I do little files and things like that. They're pretty much fully formed. I just need to know how fully formed they are. That's all. Now you're both writing work that has a degree of the fantastic in it. How do you develop credible and immersive settings within the context of that genre? I mean, with science fiction, you know, you, you can have, you can, you know, you've got everything from Star Wars, which isn't technically science fiction, but we're, we'll go with it as a shorthand, you know, to, to say The Martian or something, which is hyper real. I tend to, to live a little more in the middle. And I, so where I start is um, I always want it to be plausible. Whether or not it's possible is a whole different <laughs> thing. But sure. like, I want it to be something where within the the realm of science as we know it the things that i suggest could happen and so that's always the thing i'm asking myself and so sometimes i have to reverse engineer things you know if i if i want for example you know in in my first book the long way to a small angry planet you know they're building wormholes and so i just have to you know i had to be like okay this is just a place where that happens but how and sort of work back forward from that and figure out, you know, how much can I BS and, and how much can I actually, you know, ground in something real. And so the, 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 the more grounded it is, I think, um, the more your audience will believe you. I intentionally kind of gloss over some of the, you know, the the more technical details, because I know that people with a, a, a science background may come into it and be like, well, that wouldn't work at all. And so I just sort of I just go with the, the mindset that this is happening hundreds of years in the future. And there are things going on that we just don't have the skill or understanding for just as people 500 years ago wouldn't understand how we are having this conversation right now. <laughs> so yeah, so it's, it's, it's finding that balance between how, how real can I make this given, you know, the, the laws of nature as we understand them and, and how much can I get away with saying, well, it's the future and, and that's how it goes. And, and Nisia, I think this question applies particularly to your latest novel, Everfair, which is in many ways set in a very real and credible time, but just tweaked slightly into a kind of what might have been, what could have been in, in other circumstances. So how, how do you balance those things with, with your work? Well, I, I certainly try to make things plausible as well. I did do a little fooling around with timelines. Um, there were actually um, 
nuclear reactors, natural nuclear reactors in the area of Africa that I write about, but they kind of uh, ran out of material maybe a million and a half years before <laughs> my story starts. So I, I fudged that a little, but otherwise I tried to make things more or less in line with what actually might have happened. I find that giving people lots and lots of physical detail, um, the smell of the rubber that is coating the jump sheets and that kind of thing makes it more uh, plausible. Yeah. Now, I want to talk a little bit as well about joy and compassion. I see in both both your work, Becky, and, and in your work, Nisi, these coming to the fore. And I wondered if you guys wanted to just talk about either or both of those factors and how they work in, in, in your books. Um, sure. So I think science fiction often gets associated with being grim or scary or uh, a little bit creepy. Um, and for good reason, you know, um, we live in very uncertain times and art is always a reflection of, of the times we live in. So it, it's no surprise to me, especially with something like science, where you're never sure what you're going to uncover, right? So there is definitely an element of fear. Um, but I think while I think that's important, like we need to have those stories, I think it's it's equally important to have the flip side of discovery, which is hope and progress and something worth working toward. Um, so in my work, um, even though, you know, there, there are tough things happening, there are, you know, parts of the galaxy that are really not very nice. Um, but ultimately it has to be a future that the reader could see themselves in and, and wants to be a part of, because I think while we need like cautionary tales, we also need futures we can, we can aim for something that makes the immediate struggle worth it. And compassion just goes hand in hand with that. You know, compassion is, is sort of a counterpart to cooperation, right? You have to be able to understand your, your fellow people, you know, be they human or not, if you're, you know, if you're going to get anything done. And, and so people dealing with each other compassionately, people dealing with each other respectfully is, is um, something that's really important to me in my work. Mm. Okay. How about you, Nisi? Compassion and joy in your work, what do you think? Well, uh, joy is very important. Uh, I, I actually have uh, a sequence where one of my point of view characters has to, to explain to the other point of view character actually has to show them that joy is something that is necessary for there to be communities, for there to be progress, um, that it's a duty of people who are at the leading edge of these communities. They have to show and demonstrate joy so that others can can show and dem and demonstrate and experience joy. So very, very important. Thank you for picking up on that. Um, compassion, well, it's everywhere. It's in all my work. Um, I don't know that I can say much about it because it's such a part of my daily life. Yeah, I, I think I'll just say that it's there. You're right. <laughs> okay. Um, and I wanted to just follow up with a more general comment um, to both of you and your work. Nissi, if I start with you, when I think about your writing and, and the writing of other women of colour, and I'm, I'm thinking here of people like Octavia Butler and Neadia Korofer and N.K. Jemison, there seems to be, to me, an evident difference between that body of work and the more and, and other work that I've read and in sort of two areas, one being the attention to physicality and the environment and to the range of sensory information that kind of the fact that the characters, so many of the characters are observant of what's immediately around them, but also 
how very practically resourceful uh, your leading characters are it, it, across all of that that work. Do, do you think there's an aspect of the experience of women of colour that lends itself to expressing these things? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's just this whole attitude among women of colour and black women in particular of making do to get by. Uh, Nalo Hopkinson, uh, who's from another part of the African diaspora, the Caribbean, um, she has to- told me her saying is, uh, what, what spoil style? What, what spoil makes style? So in other words, whatever is messed up, you just go with that and change it and, and make it into something new and better and more fitting for what you're trying to do anyway. So there's a very, very strong tenor throughout all of the community that you have to use what you've got to get what you want. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And now, Becky, um, I kind of uh, thinking about your work and I, I sort of had the privilege of an early reading of, of your second novel. And there seems to be this wonderful tension in your work between it being very accessible and very engaging in a, and, and, and very hopeful, but also very profound. But it doesn't, in its profundity, it doesn't get, it doesn't get preachy, it doesn't get didactic. There's none of that in there. It is just very generous. I could, that was the word I was thinking about the, this tension between these two things, and that was the word that I, it's a very, it's a very gen, it's very generous, your work, in terms of the way it says, look, look, let me open this up to you. Think about it in this way. This is quite hard, but how do you think you, you, you achieve that? How do you, how do you create that tension? Um, well, thank you, first of all. <laughs> I would say, you know, accessibility and fun is always my my the primary thing I'm checking off my list. Right. Like I I said this to you in our in our previous interview. But like if all you get out of my work is a fun space story, that's fine by me. There is absolutely value in, um, you know, just taking your brain away for a while, going to space for a while like that. If that's all you get. Awesome. And so that's what I that's what I strive for first. Now, the the rest of it, you know, it's all coming from the things I think about, the things I care about. Um, and that just kind of bleeds into the work, you know, no matter what. And so, yeah, there are some bigger ideas in there. There are some big, messy things that, that I try and pick apart or at least just sort of visit for a little while. That to me is important as well, because I think science fiction is at its best when it's when it's saying something, but I think science fiction can't help but say something, you know, it's always saying (laughs) something about, um, you know, our, our current condition and where we're going, you know, even, even if it on the surface, it just looks like, Oh, spaceships and planets. Well, those are pretty cool things to (laughs) to think about, you know? So, um, so the fact that, you know, there, there are social aspects in there. I mean, that all just goes hand in hand with exploration. So I, I try to keep, a light touch on that. You know, I never go in thinking this is the message and this is what you're going to learn because everybody's going to come away with something different, you know? So I try to tell us a fun story. I talk about the things that are important to me and what people get out of it from there is, is, is really up to the reader. A follow on question to both of you. How can writers exploit and present the physicality of environment in their work? Accurate description, observance, um, I'm constantly paying attention to what's going on around me. That is part of my spiritual practice, is being rooted in the world and noticing the world, um, because the world is, is a sacred sacred thing, a sacred place. So conveying that um, in, my, in my work is very important. I love uh, the detective stories like Raymond Chandler, uh, Dorothy Sayers, where you have an actual 
built-in excuse for why people are observing things. So I don't have that in, in my stories, but I do have intelligencers, and I do have people who just, like uh, my Colette an analog, uh, Lisette in Everfair, who are just almost uh, intoxicated, drunk on on physicality. Mm. So what about you, Becky? I mean, it, obviously, I'm going to kind of get into spoiler territory with, with, with your book, but, but it does... It does get sort of almost down and dirty in some places, doesn't it? It's kind of there's a lot of that going on. Yeah, definitely. I, I, the similarity, I, I mean, obviously very different settings mm. from the long way, but the similarity there is I always start with home. You know, mm. what, what is the place that you live? What is the place that you spend most of your time? You know, my my stories tend to be very um, personal, sort of small scale stories. They're they're about individuals rather than than you know the the, the galaxy at large. Mm. So. I always start there, you know, where do you sleep? Where do you eat? Um, the, because I think those are the things that are the most relatable for the reader too. You know, anytime you travel, that's the first thing you figure out is where am I going to stay and what am I going to eat? So when you're, when you're taking the reader on, you know, it sounds trite, but when you take the reader on a journey, you need, to, <laughs> you need to tell them where they're going to be, you know? Yeah. So I, so I came from a theater background, um, you know, among other things, I worked in, in set construction a bit. So set dressing, environmental storytelling, these are things that are, are um, really important to me. The idea of, you know, what can you tell about a character or a people just by, you know, what the background is, you know, what, what their, what their props are, you know, those sorts of things. So the, the, the tangibility of my character's environment is something that's, that's really important to me. Okay. What insights can you give to aspiring authors uh, on writing successful romance scenes? And if you can hold that in your head for a moment, it, does that change when that scene starts to include sexual intimacy? Is it is it all of the same thing, or do you think there are there are different dynamics between, say, a, a scene with sexual intimacy and a scene with romance? Who gets to go first? Yeah, I'm, you can you can take that one. I need to chew on it a little bit. Oh, oh, <laughs> well, uh, writing romance uh, for aspiring writers it helps if you've ever been in love. Not everybody has. Not everybody has. No, that's uh, true. So yeah, yeah. if you've been in love, then you will have uh, the emotional content uh, to, to project onto your characters. Uh, I, I know of people who've tried to write romance scenes that haven't been in love and um, right. they failed. They failed. So uh, drawing, drawing from your own experience is, is very, very helpful. And uh, also very helpful is uh, the idea that you don't always mesh that your characters okay, yeah. may not be experiencing the same thing in the same scene, even though they're right next to each other. So uh, someone who is having a very romantic moment may be having that moment with someone who just doesn't feel it or is having a complete, complete oblivion to what's going on. Um, I, I've experienced this myself oh, okay. with someone who I thought we were swimming and they were not feeling the water at all. Um, <laughs> uh, and then when it comes to sex, uh, no, I don't think that there's that much of a difference. Um, there's more of a spectrum, in my opinion, than an on-off switch with sex. Some people are more mm, explicit about what's going on. Um, I wrote two sex scenes in Everfair, one from the point of view of the uh, Colette analog, and that was all like 
and then everything was happy <laughs> because that's that's how Colette would have written it. And then I wrote another one from the point of view of someone who was much more earthy. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, biological description going on in that section. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's useful. So interesting. So remembering the point of view of the character as a, as a prism through which to make that description, it sounds like that's one of the points you're making there. Yes. Becky, did you want to comment on, on any of that at all? Add anything? Yeah, I, I like what Nisi said about it being a spectrum, mm. you know, because you can have you can have love without sex and sex without love and, mm. you know, two of them all mixed up. So these are all very different types of scenes. I personally use sex very sparingly in my work, and that's intentional. Um, there's a, I think there's actually probably more talking about sex than there is actual sex being depicted on the page. And that's usually coming from, from sort of a cultural standpoint of people trying to understand how other species interact yeah. i guess yeah. um but i think when you're when you're writing either one um or both it's important so building off of what nisi said about it's it's good to have been in love yourself it's also good to think about how long these people have been together and what their relationship is like you know love is not mm. well it's a universal experience it's it's different between Everybody, you know, and people who have been together, who are starting a romance is a very different sort of thing than people who have been living together for 10 years or 20 years or people who have been off and on, people who are seeing each other casually. You know, I think there's um, it's sort of easy to fall into this thing of like, oh, well, love means, you know, you're always just you're always super passionate about each other. And, you know, you're you're always you know, you're you're hopping into bed with each other within like three sentences and you know, it lasts all day. And it's like, well, no, that's not like, sometimes you got to do the laundry, you know, like sometimes you've got to, like, <laughs> sometimes you've got to build some stuff from Ikea and, you know, inevitably fight about it. You know, yeah. like there, there are, there are, um, there are levels of maturity and, and time in a relationship. Mm. And I think those are really, really good mm. things to think about um, when, when you're building scenes mm. like that. Okay. Each of you has a very distinctive voice in your writing. What advice would you give to writers who want to develop and nurture their own voice? I think um, it's just something that comes with time, really. You know, it's when you first start out, you're inevitably sounding like other people, whether you mean to or not. But you are you are drawing from the stories that attracted you to writing in the first place. So you're going to sound a little bit like your favorites. And actually, I think that's a good thing because you're kind of like trying on those shoes a little bit, seeing what works for you and what doesn't. And as with everything in writing, it just takes time. Like the more you refine um, what your style is, you know, the more you do it, the more work you put out there, um, eventually you'll get to, you know, what sounds like you and there's no real science to that you know there's no step one step two it just it's it's one of those things that that happens as your work matures nissi what's what's your experience with this well i have taught classes on voice and uh, one of the exercises that i have my students do is to write out uh either typing or longhand what whichever method they use actual passages from authors whose uh, work they enjoy, whose voices they love. Um, I think that doing this consciously helps you understand what's going on unconsciously because, as Becky said, you inevitably start out uh, with those voices uh, coloring your own voice. So becoming conscious of that, I think, is, is, is a good way to begin. Uh, as she says, it's, it's something that takes time 
Uh, I've been told that that I actually my voice is something like a mockingbird's because I have several uh, n- different styles. Not only in the dialogue uh, in Everfair, the eleven viewpoint characters, eleven um, have um, different <laughs> have different narrative styles yeah. for for each yeah. chapter. So you know, there's. Lizette is in a Colette style. Um, King Wenda is in a uh, colonial uh, narrative style, uh, the, a reproduction of yeah. uh, indigenous speech patterns, so on and so forth. Okay. Yeah. Go on, Becky. I, oh, I was just going to say, I, I had a, a similar experience with The Long Way because I had, I had nine. Um, <laughs> not, not quite 11, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> But I think, you know, it's it's yeah, it's a real challenge, isn't it? It's it's tough because you, you, you know, especially because I'm, I'm writing, you know, third person. So it has to be clear in each chapter, you know, who it is we're seeing this from. And, you know, you can do that through things like slang or swearing or or just a speech patterns, um, you know, things like that. But um yeah, that, that gets tricky. That gets tricky really fast. Um, <laughs> yeah, figuring out how everybody sounds and making sure they're distinct. Yeah. Now, you've both got a book coming out around now. In fact, uh, Nissi, your book, I think, is out today as we're recording. It's, it's, um, is it today? Everfair is out? Today! 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 Oh, oh my goodness. Congratulations. Um, Yeah, congratulations indeed. So, Everfair is out today. And, uh, Becky, your book, uh, A Closed and Common Orbit, is out next month. So, what I'd like to do is to get each of you to read just a short passage from your respective books and then Tell us a little bit about what that passage means to you, why, why you've chosen it. Lissy, do you want to go first? Um, I'm just trying to dig the book out of my bag because I okay. forgot <laughs> when I was doing this. Um, okay. Do you want a moment or two? No, I've got it. Uh, and then I remember the page number. So this is, this is a, a section from later in the novel. Uh, it's from the point of view of Fwendi, who... Uh, came to Everfair as a refugee from a village that Leopold's police force had destroyed. She grows up and becomes involved with, emotionally, physically, sexually, romantically involved with a man named Matty, who is modeled on J.M. Barry, an older white man. This is Mombasa, Kenya, September 1915. Should she tell Maddie? Fwendi had never explained to anyone how she rode the cats. Grandmother's brother McCoy knew. He'd protected her secret. But he'd always known. Her parents must have told him. Her parents, or at least one of them, must have been the same as she was. She sighed and rolled gently to the hotel bed's edge. Maddie barely stared. He'd grown used to her leaving him in the middle of the night like this. Her shift and robe lay where she'd left them, carefully folded and stacked on the chest at the bed's foot. She dressed in the dark and felt her way to the window. She pushed open the shutters. For a moment, the only light she saw came through the few high windows of the colonial administration building across Kisumu Road, indicating rooms where an official worked late hours. For Everfair's downfall, perhaps? Then clouds parted and the white moon shone invitingly. She stepped onto the room's balcony as a soft wind swept her cheeks, drying tears she hadn't known she shed. 
Closing the shutters behind her, she began softly to sing. The carved stone railing felt cool against her arms as she leaned forward. Crooning, calling, soon the first cat came out onto the pavement below. Then three more. Then another three. That should be enough. Wendy changed her song, her voice lowering, deepening. Up the vine clinging to the hotel's walls they climbed. She sank back onto the rattan chair she kept waiting there as the gathering cats perched one by one on the balustrade. The lamplight spilling from the fire building helped her see their coloring. Two ginger and two gray tabbies, a black, a black and white, and one poor thin animal darkly mottled like Lisette's treasured tortoiseshell powder compact. Her singing dropped to a whisper. To hear her better, it seemed, the cats came forward and nestled around her feet on the chair's back, even on her lap. Stroking their dirty fur, she saw fleas leap before her fingers. She would have to bathe in the morning, as always. The song stilled became nothing but breath. The cat's breathing matched Fuendi's. She let her eyelids flutter shut. The pleasant drowsiness filled her. As tempting as the idea of resting in this place all night was, her work beckoned. She entered the cat's heads. Hmm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, about that passage, why you chose it and um, why, why it's important within the context of your book then? Uh, um, I chose it because it's just one of my favorites. It was fun to write and fun to think about. Hmm. I want people to, to experience the pleasure that I had in writing it. That's, uh, that's the main thing. Structurally in the book, it's one of the many instances of spying going on. That's all I'll say about mm. that. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, Becky, do you want to read your passage to us and then talk a little bit about it? Yes. Um, so this passage comes from about halfway through the book. Um, it is not spoilery, I promise. Um, it deals with... Um, the, the childhood of, of Pepper, who was a minor character in The Long Way. Um, most of A Close and Common Orbit is about her. And so um, her her background is is laid out pretty, pretty you know, quickly in, in The Long Way in that she's she's a genetically engineered human. Um, she was created as part of a, a worker cast uh, on an estranged uh, colony world. Um and uh, for, for the first 10 years of her life, she lived in a factory and had no knowledge of, of the world outside. And in this scene, um, Jane, which is Pepper's name before she, she chose her own in adulthood, um, has, has gotten out of the factory and is um, has just had planets explained to her. And so this is her seeing the night sky within the proper context for the first time. Jane stepped outside. It was so dark and cold, too. Jane swallowed and looked around, trying to see things that were close. Nothing was moving. She couldn't hear anything moving, either. She thought for a second about going back inside, but she didn't. She found the ladder and climbed it. She looked up. Jane couldn't move. The cold was making her shaky, but that was the only thing about her that moved, except for her heart beating real loud in her ears. The sky was, it was, it was so full. And now that she knew what the specks were, it made her head spin and her mouth dry. There were dozens of stars, dozens of dozens, way too many to count, just like her questions. 
There were big stars and little stars, and some that were kind of red or blue. There wasn't any part of sky that didn't have stars, but most of them were in one big, big strip that was fluffy and soft and so, so bright. Owl had showed her a picture of a galaxy, but this was different. This was real. This was real. A few days ago, the factory had been everything. There were no planets. There were no stars. The big blue day sky had been confusing enough, but this... There were people out in the stars. So many people. All those little bits of light, they all had planets so big you couldn't even tell that you were standing on a ball. And all those planets had people. And species. Species in different colors and kinds. Jane couldn't even picture that many people. It didn't make sense. None of it made sense. She sat down. She didn't know if she felt good or if she felt sick. The mothers had to know this was here. They didn't leave the factory, she figured, but they had to know. Why didn't the girls know? Why hadn't they been told? Why couldn't they go outside? They could still sort scrap even if they knew about the sky. Jane felt something bad, something she didn't have a word for. She felt all hot and wrong. She wanted to break something on purpose. But then she looked up again, up at the big, soft galaxy, and after a bit, she felt okay. She felt good. Somehow, outside, looking at the stars, everything was a little better. It didn't make sense in her head, but it did down in her stomach. She looked at the stars, and she knew all her questions would get answered. All the things would get fixed. All this weird stuff was okay. That was wonderful. So thank, thank you so much, both of you, actually, for sharing, sharing those, those two passages. And I was just writing some little notes down as I was listening to both of you. And there's, there, there was some things in, in common, I think, between those two. They were both very, very personal and full of that sensory language that we've been talking about and full of a sense of wonder and, a, and just a delight in that particular moment. I think both of those characters were just delighting in the moment that they were in there. So that, that, was, that was great. Thank you to both of you for that. We're coming to the end of our chat now. Is, is there anything else that either of you would want to say to, by way particularly of advice or encouragement to aspiring authors, especially anyone who's perhaps feeling a little bit discouraged at the moment or a bit marginalised or it's, it's, it's tough being a writer? What would what would you say to those people? Uh, I would I would say that I I, uh, I have a book coming out that that is based in part on the first short story I ever got a rejection letter for. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean h- half of of Close and Common the 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 Pepper's backstory that was that was the one of my early short stories very rightly rejected because I I just wasn't there yet and that's an important thing to note like when you're when you're starting out. Or even if you've been at it for a while, you know, there, there's no um, there's no time frame, right? Everybody's everybody's journey is a little bit different, you know, mm. and it, it takes different amounts of time for different people. Mm. So you may have a story in your head that is the most important thing to you that you think of all the time, and you just might not be able to write it yet. That was the case for me for a long time. You know, I had to just keep practicing. I had to keep writing stories that didn't work. Because that's how I got to the point where I was able to to write things that that do work, hopefully. You know, so just because the story in your head isn't landing on the page the way you want it to doesn't mean that it never will. It just means that you you have to keep going, keep working on it and and don't give up. How about you, Nisi? What would what would you be saying to give a bit of encouragement to struggling writers? Uh, That it is work, but that it is uh, work that you can love 
and yeah. that you can spend your entire life doing better. Yeah, that that it is something that you can can love lifelong. Mm. Okay, well, just to to wrap up then, just as a reminder to everybody uh, listening to this, so Nisi this is Nisi's book uh, Everfair is out on the sixth of September, which is the day we're recording today. Um, and uh, I understand you're going to be on tour over the next couple of weeks or so is that correct yeah i'm going to austin san diego scottsdale arizona and los angeles first (laughs) okay and do you have a website people can go to just to check out your work and and where you're going what you're up to yes it only has the september dates at this point but it's n-i-s-i-s-h-a-w-l dot com okay um now so just as a reminder then so uh becky your book uh, a closed and common orbit uh, i think that's out on the 20th of october is that correct that's correct okay that's great and are you on tour with your book are you visiting anywhere are you doing anything uh, i will be in the uk in october uh late october i don't have dates yet we're still working that out okay. but uh, i will be making the trip across the pond excellent well it'll be great it'll be great to see you then so thank you so much to both of you for your time nisi shaw's book Everfair is out now And Becky's book, Becky Chambers' book, A Closed and Common Orbit, will be out on the 20th of October. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, if you're interested in finding out more about the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook project, then just go over to Indiegogo.com and look up the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook there. Thank you again, Nissi and Becky, for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. All right. Likewise. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.